You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On October 31st of 2011, in Armstrong, British Columbia, a lady was preparing to enjoy Halloween one more time with her friends as she realized that they were all getting older and they were all going to be headed in life's many directions in the very near future. Halloween was her favorite day of the year. Taylor Van Deest would dress up as a zombie and then leave home at 5.50 p.m. About 10 minutes into her walk, around 6 p.m., she would send her boyfriend the last text message that she would ever send. It read simply, being creeped. What happened and what was the fallout from this case that would take seven years to fully resolve itself? Hello, and welcome to the 50th episode of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Halloween Murder of Taylor Van Deest. to GBNF. As Lance said, this episode is pretty significant for us. This is our 50th episode. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Sometimes it feels like we just started this journey and other times it feels like we've been at it forever. It has been an incredible journey. We started with unsolved cases in a bi-weekly format and we have evolved into all kinds of crimes since then and of course we're now a weekly episodic podcast. It definitely feels like quite the accomplishment to say that we have done 50 now. Well, to be fair, I think you're at 47, so you don't get to celebrate. Ugh, come on. Ah, kid, I kid. I love having you along on this journey with me. This week, I decided that since it's October, we would do a topical episode together. And, well, I knew of the case of Taylor, and I feel like it's an interesting story, of course but also a precautionary tale to remind us that regardless of age and regardless of pretty much anything, we all have to be safe and hyper-aware at all times. Before we get to that, we just want to remind you that if you're listening to our podcast and you like what you hear, please join us over on Patreon and you can become part of our team. A shout out again to Michelle and Stacy, who have been our patrons now for a long, long time. Something really cool that we're going to add starting with this episode. So starting right here at episode 50 on Patreon at the when we're finished recording every episode, Julie and I are going to do a video of us responding to the case. And that's going to be available on Patreon for all of our patrons at any level that you choose to subscribe at. So if you want to see us and get to see that more personal side outside of the case itself, 
we're definitely going to share what we think and talk a little bit on video for you guys and for our patrons. So definitely come over and check us out on Patreon. And without any further ado, let's jump into today's case. Taylor Van Deest was a typical 18-year-old living in Armstrong, British Columbia. Armstrong is located in the North Okanagan region of BC and is between Vernon and Enderby. It is approximately 500 kilometers to the northeast of Vancouver and approximately 500 kilometers northwest of Spokane, Washington. Armstrong celebrated their centennial anniversary in 2013. As of the 2021 census of population, Armstrong had a population of 5,323. Taylor lived with her mom, Marie, and her twin sister, Kirsty. Taylor is remembered as an old soul because she loved jazz music and she was also a gamer. She spent her spare time playing games with friends, most notably World of Warcraft. As we mentioned off the top, Halloween was Taylor's favorite day of the year. She looked forward to spending it with friends, dressing up, and just the fun and joy that came with the holiday for her. On October 31st, 2011, Taylor made the decision that she wanted to go trick-or-treating with her friends one last time. Sure, they were getting older, but she felt that they had one more good year of knocking on doors and filling up on candy left in them. She had just graduated from Pleasant Valley High School the previous June. I think we've all been there for sure. I remember wondering how old you had to be before it was unacceptable to knock on doors and get candy. I don't know how that works out for everyone else, but I know that where I grew up, the teenagers generally let the kids all go trick-or-treating, and then when things quieted down, they would go around in hopes of getting whatever candy was left. I certainly understand not wanting to pass up the free candy. I agree. I totally agree. That's exactly how it was in our neighborhood as well. I'm pretty sure it's like that everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly what Taylor did. She dressed herself up as a zombie because she was absolutely in love with the show The Walking Dead and left home around 5.50 p.m. to meet up with her friends Clay and Zoe and her boyfriend Colton. Her intention was to walk the route that she always walked along Pleasant Valley Road to meet up with her friends. However, along the walk, she reached the intersection of Pleasant Valley and Colony Avenue, and she chose to take a shortcut that crossed over a train track. During the entirety of her walk, Taylor was in contact with her friends that she was going to go trick-or-treating with, and her boyfriend, who was not going to join them door-to-door. As she was walking and they were texting, there was a worrying text that came through at 6.02 p.m. The text was to her boyfriend Colton. It was worrying for a couple of reasons. First off, the text said simply, being creeped, which was, of course, worrying enough. But also of note was that Taylor had misspelled the word creeped with two R's and only one E. This was of note in hindsight because Taylor's friends said that she was a notorious and a meticulous texter, always quick with her responses and always sure to spell every single word correctly. That would, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, point to the fact that maybe Taylor was spooked or frightened and she had texted extra quickly just to get the message off. The walk itself was a short one between the two homes, 
and when Taylor did not arrive when expected, immediately her friends and Colton sprang into action because of the last text. And perhaps also with the heightened senses that we tend to get around the spooky season. Taylor's friends immediately headed out and started searching the area that they figured she would have walked. The teens obviously started to get really worried when they had no contact with Taylor and couldn't even find a sign that she had been where they were looking. Approximately two hours after they started to search for her, they found a phone. When they picked up the phone to examine it, they realized that they were indeed in trouble. The phone belonged to Taylor. It was found near the train tracks that were along the shortcut. This, as you can imagine, set the friends into a panic and they started to frantically look for Taylor, yelling her name and trying to hear or see anything that could help them to locate their friend. Unfortunately, they would find her. Around 8.45 p.m., they saw a body on the ground lying in a patch of grass about 10 feet away from the train tracks. Even though it was dark, they recognized from a distance that the body on the ground was indeed Taylor. Taylor was lying face down in the long grass. She was alive, but in very rough shape. She was mumbling, but nothing that was coming out was coherent, and she was fighting very hard to breathe. There was dark discoloration around her neck, and she had broken blood vessels in her eyes. All of that caused, of course, by strangulation. All of that, however, was not the most worrying facts. The worst part was that there were extremely significant wounds to her head. Taylor's skull had seemingly been crushed by blows and blunt force trauma of some kind. Her hair was soaked and matted with drying blood and brain matter. Her lips were cut, she had a massive cut on her forehead, and for some reason she had bruising inside of her mouth. She also had bruising and injuries to the rest of her body as well. The friend had of course notified police of Taylor's disappearance and the locating of her phone, and now 911 was called and an ambulance was dispatched. Taylor's mom, Marie, was also at the scene, and she got in the ambulance with her daughter, who was holding on for dear life. She reportedly kept telling Taylor, quote, Fight it. You're going to make it, Taylor. Survive. Unquote. The paramedics were able to stabilize Taylor for the ride, which was approximately 20 minutes, to Jubilee Hospital in Vernon, British Columbia. Unfortunately, when they arrived at the hospital, ER doctor Michael Concanon fought hard to save her life, but he also noticed that her pupils were enlarged and unresponsive to any stimuli, which is a common symptom of severe brain damage. She was placed on a breathing machine, but unfortunately by the next morning she had passed away because of a bleed hemorrhage from the blunt force trauma that she had received. Unfortunately, that meant that all that was left to do was start an investigation and hope that whoever had attacked Taylor would at the very least face justice. There were early breaks in the regard. The staff at the hospital had the wherewithal to realize that some of the wounds that Taylor had suffered were in line with defensive wounds, which meant that she had likely fought back hard against her attacker and odds were there would have been some kind of DNA left behind. That at least meant that if they managed to catch the attacker, they would quite possibly have the DNA evidence needed to ensure that they paid for their crime. 
Houses nearby where Taylor was found were canvassed by police and they found rather quickly that some of the residents had even heard screaming coming from the area near the tracks around the time that the attack would have taken place. Sadly, however, it seemed that everyone had guessed that the screams were related more to Halloween fun than a murder. You could see how that could happen. Even if it wasn't Halloween, this was a very small town, and I'm sure that before this happened, murder was not at the top of anyone's list of things that may be going on. Heartbreaking nonetheless, but you have to figure that the vast majority of people would assume the same thing, especially given it was Halloween. Photos were also released by the police of Taylor in her zombie costume in hopes that perhaps memories would be triggered. On November 3rd, a press conference was held and police unfortunately had to tell the public that they did not have any suspects in the case. The facts regarding how Taylor had been killed and the scope of the attack were not released to the public, however. We've mentioned in the past that there are two main reasons for this. First, of course, one of the few people that would know these details would be the killer, so it could help with things like confessions. And second, historically speaking, criminals tend to run faster and further if they realize that police are hot on their tails and know more than they figure that they should. In this case, that would actually prove to be helpful. Police actually received a letter from someone claiming to be Taylor's killer, but police were able to rule this out because there were not proper or intimate details of the crime given. You have mentioned in the past that you can't understand how or why people would do something like this, but I do chalk it up as something similar to wishing for death by police officer. As we know, society is filled with people who are suffering with varying degrees of mental health issues. Sometimes people want fame, much like Luca Magnata did, regardless of how they find it. It's still sickening, though. Yeah, you wouldn't find any semblance of an argument there from me, that's for sure. At the end of November, another press conference would be held, and this one came with some good news. The RCMP announced that there was indeed DNA discovered under Taylor's fingernails, and from that, police were able to come up with a genetic profile for the killer. It was announced that the killer was male, and they actually had a hit from the DNA that dated back to a previous case in 2005. Unfortunately, the DNA was stored without a name attached from the previous case. The ties between the cases were certainly there, though. The earlier case involved a sexual assault against a massage parlor escort. It was clear that whoever police were after had a pattern of targeting women who were on their own and a pattern of seeking gratification at a moment's notice. Without a name or suspect, police dove back into the case from 2005, though, and they were able to put together enough information to have a sketch made. The man that they were looking for was Caucasian with a slightly darker skin tone, and he was believed to be around 20 years of age in 2005, meaning that he would be around 25 to 26 years of age at the time of Taylor's murder. He had dark eyes, likely brown, and had short, dark hair and thick eyebrows. It was believed that he was between 5'8 and 5'10 and had a stocky build. I should mention here um, that the way that they were able to get the description of the suspect for both cases essentially was by talking to witnesses 
from the first case and carrying that information over to try to age progress a little bit so that they could get an accurate representation of what the um, attacker might look like, you know, years later. The combination of the press conference and the composite sketch worked. Police fielded information from approximately 1,300 people. That is a large percentage of people in an area with such a small population. In December, police headed to Cherryville, BC, which was about one hour southeast of Armstrong. Many reports had poured in about a man there that fit the descriptions that police had put out. The man's name was Matthew Forster. Cherryville had a population at the time of only 614 people. 30 of those people contacted police to report Matthew. What was more was that police quickly found out that Matthew had fled Cherryville and his apartment very quickly, just days after Taylor's death. He'd actually requested his damage deposit back from his landlord, but when he found out that it would take days to get the cash, he left without even that. That seems suspicious, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. I really want to hit on this. We always tell people that they should report anything that's suspicious, and this is a prime example of that. Sure, there are always lots of reasons that someone would move quickly, but when the man in question looks like the suspect in a murder case, make a phone call. Kudos to those people that called this tip in. Better to be safe than sorry. Police would speak with Matthew's father, who told police that he was offered a job in the oil fields up north and that he had left quickly because the job offer was time sensitive. Police, however, found that to be very curious. Not just because it seemed an unlikely story, but Stephen Forster also was known to police, including charges for evading police. They felt that perhaps Stephen was aware of the real reasons that his son may have left, and he may have helped and been helping him to run. They were right. Police would tap Stephen's phone, and they found out that over five months, Stephen had done everything that he could to help Matthew disappear, even going as far as purchasing identification from someone else to help give Matthew fake ID and a new persona. In March of 2012, after listening to many phone conversations between Stephen and Matthew, they got their break that they wanted when the two made a mistake and let slip information that told police where Matthew was. He had secured a job at a glass factory in Collingwood, Ontario, using the fake persona that his dad had secured for him. He was living under the name Mr. Shawcross. In that same phone call, ironically, Stephen would tell Matthew to stop using the cell phone because he thought that the lines were being traced. Little too late. Police knew that they would need to move quickly. Stephen Forster was taken into custody on charges of aiding and abetting a wanted fugitive, and while in jail, he would brag to another inmate about all of the work that he had done to help his son escape. There was one problem with that, though. The inmate that Stephen was bragging to wasn't actually an inmate. He was an undercover police officer. I love this. I love it so much. I think that that... I think that my favorite part in these stories is when the criminals think that they've beat the system and then they wind up making such stupid, asinine mistakes because they are cocky, stupid criminals. Matthew would be arrested on April 4th, 2012 
and extradited from Ontario to British Columbia, where he would be interrogated for hours. Finally, Matthew would admit to police that he had killed Taylor, and he said that he felt massive guilt for it. He admitted that he had severe anger issues and that he had gone to Armstrong with the intention of finding a young girl to assault. He would tell police that he walked with and tried to talk to Taylor for a bit, and then when he realized that they were alone, he tried to sexually assault her. However, he quickly realized that she was not going to cooperate, and the attack ensued and escalated. He told police that he had used a shoelace to choke Taylor. Police believed that he had that shoelace with him for the distinct purpose of using it exactly as he had. Matthew would be charged with first-degree murder, showing that police believed that they had evidence of premeditation. Aside from the murder of Taylor and that previously mentioned assault on the escort, Matthew Forster was also discovered to be the assailant in a third attack. In 2004, he broke into his neighbor's home and attacked a 19-year-old girl as she slept. Matthew had worn a mask at the time, so the neighbor didn't know exactly his identity, but Matthew had screwed up royally, leaving his DNA everywhere, and when he and his father's goofy act fell apart like a house of cards, suddenly all of that unnamed DNA had a name to match it. The attack would be laid out in court. Matthew had tried to talk to Taylor, and then he had strangled her with a thin cord, seemingly the shoelace. Matthew had then struck Taylor in the back of the head with a flashlight at least six times, splitting her skull wide open. Matthew would then leave Taylor like that and flee the scene. Matthew would be found guilty in April of 2014 of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. However, on September 3rd, 2014, a notice of appeal was filed and Matthew and his legal team appealed the first-degree murder charge, stating that the judge has not done his job informing the jury of what was needed to get a first-degree charge. Ultimately, Matthew would be successful in appealing the conviction and he would then plead guilty to a lesser charge of second-degree murder. That's a significant change, unfortunately. Matthew would receive a sentence of life still, but he would be eligible for parole in 17 years rather than 25. He also would receive a combined 12 years of concurrent time for the other two cases of assault. Matthew Forster will be eligible for parole in 2029. Stephen Forster would be found guilty of accessory to murder and obstruction of justice. He would be given three years in prison and a paltry $100 fine. That date would mean that Matthew could be free from prison at the age of 45. This change was looked at as a victory for the man that killed their daughter, and Marie would say that it added even more salt to the wound. It's unreal, you know? You see this on every level of our legal system. I have two friends going through their own legal issues right now, and I won't get into those, obviously, here. But all I will say is that the system is easily manipulated, and especially in this case with Matthew, he certainly found a way to buy himself a few more years, potentially, of life after he ensured that Taylor would have no more years of life. It makes me sick to my stomach. It certainly is awful. Like, what else can you say? I think that the best way to end the episode here is to make an appeal that we've made before. 
It doesn't matter who you are or where you live. You need to be diligent. As best you can, try to make sure that you aren't alone or you're somewhere where people can potentially see you at all times. We all think that we're prepared for anything and everything in this life, but we cannot account for the thoughts and the actions of other people. It's kind of like what you say when we're on the road. You can be the best driver on the road, but it is the unpredictability of others that can change everything in a moment. You can't ever be prepared for everything, so just try to be as safe as you can. And don't be afraid to fight back. Obviously, we hope that we never find ourselves in a situation like this, but the reality in this case is that Taylor caught her own killer. The DNA that she managed to get on her hands fighting back caused a profile to be made, which caused people to call in tips, which led to capturing her killer and a man who had a history of at least two other assaults. That is some small solace, I think, that can be found in this awful story. At least Taylor's story and even two other stories had loose ends tied up. Sad, heartbreaking, but still. Some good news there, if you can call it that. Certainly. So I think that's where we'll leave it for this week. Just be safe, be conscientious, and be better. That is all we can do. We never know when our time is up, so make the most of every moment that you have. And we will see you all back here next week as we start our next 50 episodes. And don't forget, at the end of this episode, come over to Patreon, join us on Patreon, and become a part of our team. Because as we mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, we're now going to make a video, and we're going to share it every week on Patreon. And that'll be a video of our thoughts about the case so that it's separate from this. So that if you want to have that extra element, you can come grab that and join us on Patreon. So thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Have a great week.